not sign up for this, do it. If you want to start a pastorate, that would be awesome. We also have a, a few um, special encounters with God in, during this uh, end of the Lent and the starting of the Holy Week. We have the kids praising God. So in, in April the 21st, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., make sure your kids are here. If you have kids, they will love to celebrate that he is risen. Amen? We also have, um, well, also that's the treasure seekers, the journey. We have Monday service, uh, Monday, Thursday service. We have Good Friday service. We have uh, a, a few different services during um, the, this week of Easter. And we end up with the, a very early service that I want to you all to save the date, 6 a.m. Sunday here to celebrate the, that Jesus is risen. So uh, I want to invite you also, if you have any questions, just go to www.lfhers.org, click the info hub, and then you, you will find all that you need. So I get my commission now. You got it. So I want to invite Pastor Chris to come up. Oh, sorry, Mona, please come up. We're going to be led by Mona now in the scripture that we're going to be doing today. Thank you, Mona. Could we stand in reverence to God's word? I'm going to read Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray together. Father God, these are some strong words from your word. May we just be sensitive to your spirit as Pastor Chris just opens up these truths to us. May we be just wanting to know what your will is for us in this passage. Father, help us be sensitive to your spirit. Help us just to focus in on you right now. And Father, I pray that you would be with Chris as he's uh, put together all sorts of things that you have led him through this week, through this passage. And I just pray that you would just give him exactly what it is you want him to share and let him share it boldly. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Mona. You guys can have a seat. I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles. Uh, I want you to, to turn to this passage. Uh, I, was, I was actually talking with somebody this morning. And, you know, we were laughing and joking about, like, public speaking and how sometimes when you're speaking, people will check out. Uh, and he said, well, sometimes people come and they never check in. So get your Bible out. Let's check in. These are some serious words that Mona just read for us, aren't they? 
I'm not exactly sure how I drew the short straw in this passage, um, but I did. So I want to encourage you to check in. So we're going um, to we're gonna start out with just a little activity to get our minds thinking and working. I'm going to put this uh, picture up on the screen. Somewhere inside that white square is a snake. Can you find it? Right? I'm going to give you one minute uh, to see if you can find it before I show you where it is. So ready? Go. to go along with it, you know. Has anybody spotted it yet? You can see it. Raise your hand. About 30 seconds. Anybody see it? Okay, Mary said she did. All right, it's right there. Can you see it? So subtle, isn't it? I'll go in one more step. Boom. Look at that. That is something that is incredibly venomous. It's hanging out right there in plain sight. It's one of those things you could actually be out raking up your leaves and not even see it, and it could bite you and infect you with something that would kill you. That's intense, isn't it? It's right out there in the open. So when I spoke to you guys last, I spoke, about, I spoke about five threats that the Colossian church was facing. So we talked about some of the culture and some of the things that were going on, some of the religious practices and things that were happening around that time. But there's another threat that we haven't talked about yet that the Colossian church faced. Did anybody catch what it was when Mona read it? Guess not. All right, I'll give it to you. You ready? Here's the other threat that the Colossian church faced. It's an invisible threat. It's kind of hiding in plain sight, but you can't see it, just like that snake. It's called the old self. It's the old self. Now, what is the old self? The old self is who you were or what you were like before you met Jesus. And it's what you're like any time that you're separated from him. So John Calvin, who's not a bald guy, um, he's just some other guy with a funky hat. Don't worry, they don't all have hats today, but um, we didn't go that far. But he said this. He said, the old self denotes whatever we bring from our mother's womb and whatever we are by nature. The old self is distinguished by his works as a tree is by its fruits. Hence, it follows that the depravity that is innate in us is denoted by the term old self. That old self was something that the Colossian church had to deal with. Who these people that believed the gospel that Epaphras shared with them, they had an old self. They had an old reality that they carried with them into the church when they became believers. And Paul is writing to them and telling them to deal with it. And I want you to know, I want you to know that the old self hasn't gone away since the time of the Colossians. It's still here. It's even here in this room with us right now. It's in all of us. 
And unfortunately, um, I say it well, kind of unfortunately, kind of not unfortunately, but it's, it's harder in this day and age, I think, to identify the old self than it used to be. So 15, 20, 30 years ago, churches were doing these huge crusades, these huge amazing events, trying to get people to have that moment where they would pray a prayer and they would say, I'm a believer in Jesus. We were calling for a more instantly saved kind of reality. We were expecting something dramatic to change. And because that became abused and people were scaring people and all of these other things that were happening with it, the church has gone the other direction. So now we have people that instead of being instantly saved, they sort of hang out with some Christians for a while. And then over time, suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, guess, I guess I am a believer. When did that happen? And it's sort of this sliding into a relationship with Jesus that's going on in our day. So it's a little harder even to spot that old self because we've given it more room to kind of hang out for a while, hoping that eventually they'll come to realize that Jesus is real, and then we'll make some changes. So we used to call it out and then go after it right away, and now we've given it more time. So it's a little harder to spot the old self in our day and age. So when Paul calls this out in this church, it's something that's very serious. And I want to just address that today. Um, It's not the most pleasant passage of scripture for us to talk about, is it? Because there's some really hard things here. And there's some things that we have to talk about that are going to be hard for us to hear because when we talk about the old self and we talk about things that are not right between you and God, in our day and age right now, openly disagreeing with somebody is now interpreted as judgment, not an invitation to a conversation. Did you catch that? So for anybody to say, hey, I don't agree with you, why are you judging me? I'm just saying I don't agree with you. I'm not judging. I'm just having a conversation. We don't do that in our culture. We automatically jump to that judgment. So we're going to go there today, though. We're going to talk about these things. We're going to talk about the old self that we carry with us. We're going to talk about the potentials of that today. Because if we don't address the old self, it can really cause some havoc in our lives and in many of the areas of our life. So Paul, when he talks about this, I think he gives us three markers to look for about the old self that should make it a little easier for us to spot in our day. So the first one is this. It's an outward idolatry. So when he says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, you once walked when you were living with them. So what I want you to see, I want you to see those words. He gives five words here, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He says we need to kill those. We need to get rid of them. It's a pretty significant thing. So when you look at the meaning behind these words, sexual immorality in the Greek is where we get the word pornography from. That's the word porn right there. Get rid of it. And then that porn happens because there is a desire for Physically uh, or morally unclean things, that's the meaning behind impurity. It would be something or somebody that's lacking integrity or strength in regards to sexual desire. And that passion then rises out of that, which is a lust for useless things. And then that translates into this big evil desire, which will go into a place of coveting things, where you would actually go so far in coveting that you would exercise greed, fraud, extortion, or physical force in order to get what you would want. That's the old self. That's how it works. One bad desire leads into other things, leads into other things, and it snowballs into the place 
that it hurts people. So I'm going to give you a resource. I would encourage you all to get this. Uh, it's called the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It's one of my favorite Bible study resources. Uh, it takes different images in Scripture, different descriptions of things, and it unpacks them across the whole Scriptures. So this is what it said about this. It said, an idol is an object of adoration. So one who is covetous becomes an idolater. And any earthly desire, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires and greed become idolatry. While idolatry is clearly a code for violation of purity laws, especially but not only sexual ones, it eventually becomes to designate lawless living in general. The old self desires to live without laws. It desires to live by whatever fancy it conjures up in the moment. And unfortunately, that old self is very alive in our day. It's wreaking havoc on many, many, many people. And so I did some statistical research for you. Any guesses on the number of boys and the percentage of girls that have seen online pornography before the age of 18? These are our children we're talking about. 93.2% of boys. Now, what do we expect for the girls, right? A whole lot lower, right? No. 62%. That's a lot. Some studies, even when you classify it a little bit more specific to age, it's 97% for boys. And girls between 16 and 20 goes to 80%. That is insane. Pornography is one of the greatest injustices in our world. Some people get into that, and they're like, well, what's the big deal? It's just sex. Or what's the big deal? You know, it's not that, that harmful. But listen, if you're engaging in that, you are exercising injustice on the people that are on the other side of it. There are people that have no other course in their life that they can choose except to make money by doing that because people that do it create a demand for it. It's an exercise in injustice. It's not often talked about that way. The old self says, no big deal. Let's just do whatever we want. But when you start looking more at that, there are people that may or may not be willing participants in that because there are people that are living by the old self creating a demand for it. It's tragic. Paul says we need to kill that one. It's even bad in Christian circles. It's not as high with practicing Christians as what those statistics are. But the fact that it's even in practicing Christians is enough to scare us. It needs to stop. So let's talk about the next one. Paul gives another one here. Uh, he talks about being covetousness, this covet thing. So coveting is not a word that you use on a daily basis, I'm sure. You don't wake up in the morning and probably speak out loud, I'm coveting coffee today. <laughs> Maybe you do. I don't know. That's not a word I use. I just want my coffee. But Paul addresses that, and he says that the old self can so intensely and selfishly desire something that it would actually seek to deceive, threaten, or even physically harm somebody in order to take it. Make sense? That some object becomes so desirable that you would create physical harm on the other person to take it away from them. That's coveting. And we know that happens. We know that happens in our culture with money. We know it happens with wealth and power and fame and glory and politics and all those crazy things. We know that, but I want you to know in our culture, I know it's going to seem really silly, but it happens for way, way, way lesser things. little statistic for you. About 1,200 people are killed each year for their sneakers. 
It's about 600 people on average attendance here on a Sunday. Kill our church twice for sneakers. For shoes. This goes all the way back into the 90s. I put out Old Sports Illustrated issue for you. It's a little quote from it. It's an article called Your Sneakers Are Your Life. Because something is very wrong with the society that has created an underclass that is slipping into an economic and moral oblivion. An underclass in which pieces of rubber and plastic held together by shoelaces are something worth more than a human life. So Paul says that the old self is willing to kill for sneakers as well as practice injustice for sexual gratification of some kind. That's the old self. We need to pay attention to that because it has misplaced affections and misplaced desires. And if we're not careful, that old self is lurking around in here like that snake, and it's going to take somebody down. So the second marker that Paul gives us He said, it's marked by an inward idolatry. So the old self is marked by an inward idolatry. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So let's just pause for a minute on all those words. So we have anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. So when he's talking about anger here, what that word means is a violent loss of control. So somehow, any restraint that you have is now set loose to the point that if you are feeling so much wrath, it's like that point when you're so mad and you're just kind of like breathing uncontrollably at the end. You're like, Arr. anybody been there? I, yes. <laughs> There's the malice that comes from that, that you would be so filled with anger and wrath that you would actually want to hurt somebody, that you would inflict injury or harm on them. You would even go so far as to harm them by speaking uh, blasphemy about God or slandering them with evil speaking, even to the point of being obscene, which would be talking shamefully, and then even to the point where you would lie to cover up that you were talking about it. So these all build on each other again into this outward idolatry. Now, instinctively, most of us would look at that list and we would say, oh, It's obvious those are bad. We probably shouldn't do them. So, you know, I'm not supposed to get so angry, so I'll just really try to watch what I say, and I'll I'll kind of restrain it, and I'll just give myself really good filters so that the things that are coming out of my mouth don't seem so bad. And then you start feeling, well, what do I do with all that internal feeling now? Because I can't say it, so what do I do with what's stirring up inside? So we just bury our emotions deep down under our filters until our filters quit working, and then we explode. And then we go, oh, well, you know, I shouldn't really get angry, so instead of exploding, I'll just bolt on this really happy face and I'll wear a mask. Well, that's lying, isn't it? Oh, darn it, that's one of those too. This is so hard. How do you handle this? So how do you handle something like this that's so common to just being a human? Because trying to manage this issue that Paul is addressing by creating better filters isn't going to work because that's just legalism. You're just trying to restrain the flesh by better flesh filters. That's not going to work. So what do you do about it? So let's ask the question this morning. I'm going to have you turn to your neighbor and share your top five angry things. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make you do that. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm going to put myself on the spot. So let me be, ang- be honest with you. I get angry. Sometimes a lot. Sometimes to the point where I've pounded my fist on the table in my anger. So what makes me angry? I get angry when I get misunderstood. 
takes me a long time to get a thought out when I'm trying to process something. So when I don't have a space to just talk it out, I can get very, very frustrated. And because it takes me so long, I know people want to move on from the conversation about the things I'm processing. So then I try to speak more clearly and more definitively about what I'm trying to say. And then people are like, well, that's an offensive statement. And I'm like, I'm just trying to process it. I get angry about that. I get angry when people are late to church. Sorry. There are a lot of people that show up here at 7 o'clock in the morning getting ready to lead services, and they're doing all kinds of things. They're putting in a lot of work to make sure the worship of God is accessible, and people treat that very lightly. It makes me angry. So when somebody makes a wrong assumption about me or they misread a body language that I'm giving, I can get angry about that. I get angry when I'm giving somebody very, very clear leadership, and I think to myself, like, Pastor Nate would give you the same advice, and then you don't follow it. I get angry about that because I think it's really clear. Sometimes I get mad about little dumb things like chairs not being stacked up right because it's going to bend the legs and then somebody's going to have an uncomfortable seat. I get angry about piles of junk that sit in closets that don't get organized for long periods of time. And I get really mad about double standards. And then I realize, like, yeah, I didn't respond to those messages either. Or how many times I'm late during a week to something, and I'm like, oh, darn it. I can't be upset about anybody being late. Then I get angry at myself for feeling that way, and that creates all kinds of fear in me, and then I'm like, like, oh, now I'm feeling all that fear. Like, I just told you guys all that, so like, now you're going to be like, oh, stay away from him. <laughs> right? So now I'm being misunderstood because nobody's approaching me later because they're afraid of how angry I'm going to be. Listen, it, it happens. I'm just being honest, I don't live there 24-7, but I do get angry, and I'm sure you do too. So how do you deal with anger when Paul says, put it away? What do you do with it? Well, Paul says something else later in, in the, the book of Ephesians. But he says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So truth is one of the ways that you can deal with your anger. Instead of feeling what you're feeling, talk truth. So we are members of one another. So he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And that's usually where we stop. And there's actually a legalism that's been applied in the church that goes with this verse, that if the sun goes down while you're still angry, now you're sinning. And I think, well, I'm not sure Paul is actually saying, like, mark the clock to when the sun sets so that you can stay a little angry longer in the summertime than in the wintertime. <laughs> right? I, don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is the last part of that sentence that ends in the next verse is don't let your anger give the devil an opportunity because the devil likes to work in darkness. He likes to work with things that are suppressed, that are hidden. He likes to get in there and antagonize with the things that are not shared and talked about. It's a pretty significant thing. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. So when you deal with your anger... Is your anger giving the devil an opportunity to steal, kill, and destroy the identity and life that Jesus has for you? Are you getting so angry that the devil is getting an opportunity to come in and destroy what Jesus is doing in your life? Or is your anger consistent with what God makes, or what God would, would, excuse me, is your anger consistent with what makes God angry? I know, like, wait a minute, hold on, what do you mean? Ready? There's another dictionary of biblical imagery quote for you, but God presently reveals his anger against those who suppress the truth of the gospel. Is your anger suppressing the gospel in your life? 
or someone else's life. Because we have to be honest about anger. Jesus got ticked off. So let's look at a couple of moments when he got mad. So he got angry. And he says, so he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Did you catch what Jesus did? Right, we go to the, oh yeah, he flipped over the tables, he drove the cows out. Look at the first part, though. He made a whip. He sat outside the temple, grabbed some cords together, took his time making it. And he went in and he drove all of that stuff out, and he wraps that statement up when he drives all those people out. He says, you people have made this place a place of, of robbers and thieves, but this is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. The way they were exercising their commerce at that time was actually hindering people from worshiping God. Not mad that they were selling sacrifices. Some people were supposed to do that. He was mad that they were jacking up the prices so high that people couldn't worship. That's a significant thing. It's another time that Jesus got really angry. It happened on a Sabbath day. It says, he looked around at them in anger. This is a man that shows up in the synagogue. Now, if you show up in those days with some sort of disease or some sort of issue in your life, you're not supposed to be there. You're supposed to be outside the camp. You're supposed to be somewhere else. But he comes in and he sees Jesus. And they, they were looking at him and say, hey, Jesus, are you going to heal on the Sabbath day? Are you doing work on a holy day? Shame on you. And then Jesus says, go ahead and just stick your hand out. Boom, and he sticks his hand out and his hand gets made better. It's a significant story. He says he looked at them in anger, and he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he went ahead, and he brought the healing. He said, what's better, to give life on the Sabbath or to keep it? He says, I'm going to give it out on a holy day so that this man can be here, no longer kicked out, but be brought into the synagogue to be a worshiper. So what gets you angry? What's behind your anger? Is it the old self is it the old self that's giving the devil some ground in your heart to play around on? Are we just angry because we're not getting our way? Or are we angry because the truth of the gospel is being suppressed? I think we need to get more clear on that one. So we should be able to tell the difference in the anger that Paul is talking about from just common everyday anger. So we've got to make sure we get clear on that one. Now, Paul says to get rid of that part of the old self. So the old self is marked by an inward idolatry, which is summarized by anger and wrath and all of those things that can come out into an outward idolatry of sexual immorality and coveting. And so I want you to know something, that those two things are linked together. Inward and outward idolatry, they're tied together. So I'm going to give you a quote from a guy named Andy Stanley. Some of you know him. Uh, he's written a book several years ago called Enemies of the Heart. This is another one of those resources that I would encourage you to get and to read. It's a real easy read. It's got some fantastic thoughts in it. Um, it's been a very helpful book for me in dealing with anger. Um, so I want you to see this. He says, lust is rarely ever the root problem. When lust becomes problematic, it's almost always a manifestation of one or more of the heart problems of anger, guilt, jealousy, or greed. So deal with anger, guilt, jealousy, or greed, and your ability to exercise self-control in the arena of your sexuality will increase dramatically. So move past the issues normally associated with lust, and you'll find a diseased heart. 
heart lined with anger, guilt, and even jealousy. And it's significant because these, these play into each other. And so I want to share with you just one other story that he shared about this and how they connect. So this is uh, Andy Stanley talking here. But he said, years ago, when I was working with high school students, I overheard a conversation I'll never forget. I was driving a church van to camp, and two 10th grade girls were seated directly behind me. At some point in their conversation, one of the girls asked her friend, would you ever let your boyfriend? And from there, she described in teen speech an activity considered by most as inappropriate for unmarried people to be involved in. But that wasn't the shocker. It was her friend's response that blew me away. She said, if I just had a fight with my mom, I might. I say, what? If you just had a fight with your mom, like what did that have to do with anything? He says, at 15 years old, this young woman was already experiencing a relationship between her anger and her vulnerability sexually. The anger in one relationship made her vulnerable in another. It's an example of how the inward and outward idolatry of the old self are tied together. They go hand in hand. If you see what's going on on the outside, go inside to the heart and you'll find the root. And Paul says we have to put those things to death. We have to deal with them. So there's one more that he gives here, third one he gives, is the cultural idolatry. So here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So this might very well be a list of the people that made up the Colossian church. So if these were people that were present at that church, then Epaphras was one heck of an evangelist. Like, that's a lot of wild people to reach. So let me, this is where Colossae is. It's that little red dot right there. This is where it is in the world. So you can see how close it is to Greece. You can see how close it is to the Middle East. You can see how close it is to the Black Sea and all of those other things that are there. So you have all of these people and all of these cultures that are a part of this church. So it's in Greece, near Greece. It's in the Roman Empire. They have all of these crazy, diverse things. Uh, so we have the Greek people there. Uh, that are doing all of their things. I, I know there's like a Greek festival around here. The dude that cut my hair this week is like, yeah, man, my fiance is Greek. We go to all these Greek things. It's still happening. I don't know why they wear dresses in their military, but sorry. See? Anyway. <laughs> so you have the Greeks. You have the Jewish people with all of their weird things where they talk about circumcision and uncircumcision. And um, come on, it's funny. <laughs> all right. If that's not funny to you, get, get past it. I'm just being silly. This is the Greeks, this is the Jews. There's those who are circumcised, who are uncircumcised. Uh, you have the barbarians in their culture. Uh, the barbarians would be considered anybody that doesn't speak fluent Greek. So it's the lower class of people. So when we think of barbarians, we think of Conan the barbarian or some other wild, crazy, raging person. But the barbarians to the Greeks were just the uneducated poor people of the time. And then you have the Scythians there. I see them on the horses there. These are a unique group of people. They're kind of nomadic. Uh, they were the ones that invented the stirrup for the, the horse saddle. That's what they think. So that they could put their feet down so they could shoot their bow and arrow backwards at the enemy while they were riding away. They were the first ones to figure it out. Interesting crew, right? So, and the other thing you need to know about these guys is they did not dilute their wine. They just drank it straight up. So the Greeks, like, that's crazy. The Greeks would always dilute it. They would keep it mild. Not these guys. They drank it hardcore, and they even set up tents. We would go inside the tent, 
and they would put down some hemp seeds and they would light them up and they would basically be the group of high people riding on horses, drinking strong wine, shooting arrows backwards. That's the Scythians, right? So I figured that's kind of like a modern-day biker gang. And so, um, so can you see, you see the difference? And then you have people that were forced or maybe willingly went into slavery, and you have the people that were free that would lord over them. So you have all of these cultures and all of these people that are associated with the Colossian church. That's a serious mix of people, isn't it? It actually reminds me a lot of here. It reminds me a lot of our church. I know in those days you could be Greek and be like, no, this is how Greeks do things. We're not going to do it the barbarians way. And the barbarians say, no, this is, this is how we do it. And the Scythians would be like, I don't know, man. <laughs> Whatever. Right? So you have all of that mix. And I think you know what it is when a culture clashes with another culture. Some of you probably experienced it the first time you spent the night at your friend's house and their family did things differently than your family does. You may have experienced it when you formed up friendships in different times in your life and they've did things differently than you. If you've gotten married, you've definitely experienced the clash of two cultures coming together. And this church had like 10 of them. It's amazing. So this very thing touches our church. Because when I look at Living Faith Alliance Church, and I said, we have a lot of cultures here. Let me hear the Italians. Where are you at? Yes, you guys are quiet today. We have Italians. We have black and African-American families. We have Mexicans. We have Puerto Ricans. We have Pakistani, Chinese, Ukrainian, Lenape, Indian, and whatever else your ancestry DNA test told you you were. <laughs> it's actually quite remarkable that we're all able to coexist at the same time in one church body. But I want to I ask a question of that real quick. So I went to a, a mission trip to the Dominican Republic years and years ago. Um, and I think I did this book, too, when we went to Peru one time. But we were doing this book called Before You Pack Your Bags, Prepare Your Heart. So they were talking about how Americans are perceived when you go into another country. The Americans are perceived as arrogant, loud, flaunting their money, and just very proud. So they dropped this amazing question in this book. They said, are you American first or Christian first? That's a strong question, isn't it? So when it comes to your cultural heritage, to what nationality you claim, are you that first or are you Christian first? That's a big distinction for us. Nothing wrong with the culture that you have because God created all the different types of people, spread them all out all over the world. All of those cultures are at his doing. But when that culture becomes something that's an idol that cannot be challenged by the truth of the gospel, then your culture is wrong. See, the old self loves to cling to cultural divides. It has a hard time surrendering the things that it's worked so hard to ingrain in you as a way of life. So Diego went on a mission trip, I think it was to Guatemala. I apologize to anybody in Guatemala if I got it wrong. But he was talking about this country and in this country, several years back, there was a war. And the male population took a huge hit. So the cultural mindset then became, to rebuild our culture, all the men need to have four or five women. Get as many women pregnant as you can so that we can rebuild our culture was the mindset. But friends, that's not a cultural mindset that comes with the gospel. It's sad how the old self will take cultural things and put it above the gospel. 
So they had to bring truth to that, and they had to challenge that mindset. Paul calls the Colossian church to deal with that old self, with the inward, the outward, and the cultural idolatries, because that's what it's marked by. That's how you can spot it. So you can start looking at those things and say, that's the old self. That's what Paul is saying that we have to deal with. So what do we do with that? He says, put it to death. Kill it. But he doesn't go there and just say, kill it. So don't just try harder to not be bad. He says, there's something else you can do. He said, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what in the world does that mean? How do you put on the new self? What is that about? I want to unpack that for just a minute for you. So uh, this is a great quote from our Bible reading plan we're doing during Lent. But I wanted you to see this one. I thought it was fantastic. He says, honestly, there's a large part of me that would really love to find a way to be as put together as the Pharisees were, and yet have the humility and neediness that Jesus esteemed in the people he regularly had dinner with. But that happy medium doesn't exist And I certainly hope that God graciously spares me from striving to be the poster child for it. So I want you to know, putting on the new self is not about becoming a poster child for being Pharisees or for being legalists or being people that think we can restrain it by our flesh. Putting on the new self is learning to walk by the grace of God. And I want you to know something about the grace of God. We can get this confused. I know the kids are coming in, but don't miss this. Grace is not provision for you to keep on sinning. Grace is God's provision through Jesus for your way out of sin. Significant difference. Sometimes we mix that up. Because I would say, if you look at the course of human history, if you scanned it all, humans have been experts at the old self. But what have we gotten out of it? How much guilt and shame come from the old self? How many crushed hearts and broken relationships how many momentary highs followed by long-lasting wars or long-lasting lows? How many wars? How many casualties? How little peace and love and joy do we actually enjoy? Because the old self never gets us there. It always leaves us empty-handed, bearing the consequence of acts that lead to death. So the old self has been worn out. Thousands of years of human history prove that to us. So how do you do this? What does this look like? Paul says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's a significant phrase there. It's not the old self that gets renewed. It's the new self. What Jesus gives you continues to make you new. That's a significant thing. Sometimes we expect faith to sort of work like this thing where I'm going to eat a Cheeto and then I'm going to pray a little prayer when I eat the Cheeto and it's going to turn into a carrot on the way down. Right? We expect it to work that way. That's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about in dealing with the old self is he's talking about this renewal that's supposed to happen. It only happens through a relationship with Jesus because we come to Jesus like this. We surrender it all to him, not just the lamp, not just the tote. We have to give him the whole thing. And when we give him the whole thing, he comes in and he says, thank you for giving this to me, but we need to do some renovations here. So the word being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator is that Jesus would do renovation of your life. When you give your life to Jesus, he's going to come into your mess and he's going to strip it all the way down to the studs. 
He's going to take it all the way down to bare bones so that he can relay all of those foundational pieces behind it, fix all the electrical, fix all of those things. He's going to work through to where he can then put up new things, continue to paint and rebuild and restructure. That's what it means to put on the new self. See, when you come to Jesus, you might come to him like this. Looks pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But what if you had an image of something different? What if you had an image of what it looked like when it was all put back together? So when you come to Jesus and he says, we're going to make you new. We're going to take every bolt out. We're going to take everything apart here. We are going to fix every part back to brand new so that we can put you back together into the image that you were made for. You know what the image you were made for as, as a Christian is? Jesus. It's a significant thing. The new self is primarily made up of Jesus. And the only way that that happens, the only way the new self grows in you, the renovation happens is through a relationship with him. So what does that look like? It looks like this. Jesus' values become your values. If you keep reading in Colossians, you'll see what they are. Jesus' attitude becomes your attitude. His thinking becomes your thinking. His spirit guides your spirit. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. His steps become your steps. When Peter says we follow in his footsteps, John says we walk in the light as he is in the light. Jesus' light becomes yours. His joy becomes your joy. His peace becomes your peace. His suffering becomes your suffering. His kingdom becomes your kingdom. He says you get to be a co-heir with Christ in his kingdom. Your life or his life becomes your life. His image becomes your image because we are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. So what do we do with that? We look at that and we go, oh, let me judge everybody that's not that right now. No, Paul says, only let us live up to what we've already attained. This is a list of the renovations that Jesus needs to do. If you believe in him, you're probably somewhere in the process of maybe one to three of these right now. He wants to do them all. So where are you in those things? Where are you? So I'll give you some questions here to kind of help that. So is this course of action that you're currently on, is it authentic with the identity of a child of God. Right, how do you spot the old self? Right, if Jesus did the same thing you're doing, would he still be sinless? Is the course of action you're taking, is it permissible according to Jesus? Is it beneficial, especially for the person on the other side? Is what you're feeling or doing consistent with what you know about Jesus? See, would Jesus take the same steps you're taking? Would he do what you're doing? See how those questions kind of roll? Gives you an example. Now, I want to give an opportunity for you. Like, if you've been hanging around and you haven't made a moment where you say, you know what, I actually really just need to give my whole self to Jesus, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. So put this prayer, this prayer that's on these boards, I rewrote it in the first person for you. This would be one if you want to snap a picture of. In case you want to pray it later, you can. 
But I wanted to put it in a, in a first-person language because the same thing that Paul is talking about in dealing with the old self is what he prayed back in chapter one. Like that chapter one prayer keeps showing up over and over and over again as he unpacks all of this truth for this church. So if you haven't started that relationship with Jesus where he would take whatever you are and start a renovation process, if you haven't done that, I want to give you an opportunity to take that step today. I'm going to pray this prayer out loud. Be one that you would pray in your heart. Be one that I would encourage you not to keep secret to yourself. Share it with somebody so that they can help you because you're not made to go through a renovation process alone. That's what church community is for, to help you see the work of Jesus in your life and strengthen that. So we're going to do that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray that. And I'm going to put those renovation questions back up, give you some time to focus on those a little bit and see what Jesus is doing. So I'm asking you to close your eyes, unless you need to read it off the screen. There's a prayer you can pray in your heart. It says, God, fill me with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so I may walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you who has qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So you have delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you prayed that prayer in your heart, please let me know. We want to help get you connected to the right relationships to help that grow. Now, if you've already come to Jesus, he's working on things. I'm going to leave these questions up here for you. Just a couple minutes before we go into a time of communion. And I want you to pick three of these questions that you would focus on, you would pray about, you would get with some friends, talk it through. Pick three of these questions to tackle before summertime gets here. So that Jesus will begin renovating our hearts, making us more like him. That's the goal of our faith, to become like Jesus. So I'm going to give you just a minute or so just to pick those three, and we're going to move into a time of communion. So just take one minute, pick three of those questions. He took on all of our sins. He took 
that on and he gave his blood. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of those sins. It was a costly sacrifice that cost him his life. Our freedom cost him his life. But even in taking that, he still was victorious. So if you believe that, then communion is for you. If you don't believe that, just sit this one out. Parents, we talked about that. If you haven't prepared your children to take communion, we've got some resources to help you prepare them for the next time. But if that's what you believe, then this is for you. So how this works, um, I think we're missing a station here, right? You guys want to, yeah, come on up. So just go out your seat, come to the front, and then go back. Just make a circle around your, your section, okay? It's the easiest way to take communion. It can get a little lost in here with so many people. Just, just make a circle. It's the simplest thing you can do. So watch whatever direction everybody's going. Go that way. Make a circle, and you can head back to your seat when you're done. So let me pray for you. I'm ask you to stand with me. Jesus, you love every person on this planet every person that's ever existed and every person that will exist. You love them so much that you gave your life. That you made a way to the Father that no one else could make except for you. And by faith, we want to follow that process. We're not going to get it right every time. We're not going to be perfect at it. We're going to cling to your grace. We're going to remind ourselves over and over again of the sacrifice you made for us so that it doesn't lose its significance. So help us to press into that and take communion in faith today, Jesus, asking you to meet with us, to be near us, to take up residence inside of us, to take the messes that we are and make them beautiful in your hands. Jesus, in your name. Amen. So whenever you're ready to take communion, just make your way to the aisle, make a circle. is called.